ask you, uh, what is this carbon paper number coming up next? Oh, oh yeah, that's a song that uh, Annie Sue is doing. Uh, you know, she's a girl singer. I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, but, but she's not at all like you, Miss Piggy. Well, of course not, Kermie. Mm -hmm. You said she was a girl singer. I am a woman singer? Yeah, yeah, well, that, 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 that is true. So, uh, what is, uh, what is she, a chicken? Uh, what, a goat? She's not a frog, is she? Uh, no, no, she's a, uh, well, she's a, uh, she's a, a pig. <laughs> she's a pig. Another girl pig singer? Yeah, but uh, but you're a woman. Forget that. Who cares? Hi ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring—the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational. Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host Nick Jackson. Nick, it's been a minute. How are you? It has. Um, just staying super busy and trying to keep clear of the Delta variant as much as I can on public transit. You uh, you got older since last time we talked. This is true, but I've been 40 since I was 15. But yeah, no, I'm I'm an old old man. <laughs> it's 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 hard it's hard to tell. It is true. It is hard to tell when you have a birthday. Yeah, we took about a month off. Yeah. So it feels good. I feel refreshed. I feel ready to dive into these episodes. I'm I'm excited to be back for sure. Before we get started, this is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We just got back from our break. We're ready to start our season three. We're going to do a little dash here through the first handful of episodes and then just like they did on the show we're gonna take a break to talk about the muppet movie now they didn't take a break to talk about the muppet movie they took a break to actually make the muppet movie but we're not as impressive as, as these people they pumped out these first eight episodes in six weeks so they could then run back to the u.s to make the muppet movie and then run back and finish the rest of the season because these are crazy people we're dealing with lunatics one might say the 70s caught up with us this week that's gonna happen at some point though i mean we're we're almost <laughs> done with the 70s as it is i just uh we got a little disco tonight and i was like oh we had to catch some disco at some point i really enjoyed these two episodes these are good ones let's get things started production of the third season of the muppet show began in february of 1978 while Jim was excited to get back to work, his mind was elsewhere. He was juggling two movie ideas in his head. One was coming imminently to be shot during the show's hiatus that summer and fall, and the other, tentatively named The Crystal, still had a way to go before it rolled film, but it was occupying Henson's thoughts as much as any of his other projects. For now, though, it was back to the same old, same old. Or at least Jim thought. Bonnie Erickson, Muppet designer and builder, head of the Muppet Workshop, and the progenitor of the characters such as Piggy, Statler, Waldorf, the Newsman, and the Jim, Frank, and Jerry puppets from the Country Trio, left Henson Associates to form her own company. She had started as a costume designer for the Frog Prince in 1971, and here, seven years later, she was departing on another adventure, one that Jim encouraged her to take. This is what you need to do, he told her. If you need to move on, you will move on and we're not going to lose touch. They never did. Erickson's company, Harrison Erickson, Inc., 
would create several characters for television and film, as well as the mascots for Major League Sports teams, including the Philly Fanatic. The other substantial change would be harder to swallow. I'm just going to quote Brian J. Jones in full here, because this part gets a little confusing. Quote, On February 20th, 1978, 49-year-old Don Celine was found dead in his ransacked New York City apartment. Police never determined if Celine had been a victim of a crime. Instead, the cause of death was listed as a fatty liver. But either conclusion was puzzling. Muppet builders had long grown used to Celine's habit of leaving the workshop each day at 4.30 and climbing into a cab at the end of the block, then enigmatically returning to the workshop hours later. When asked where he went, Don would only insist it was a personal matter. Don was extremely private, said Dave Goles. He was always claiming health issues, but it seemed like a joke. While the cause of Don's death was ill-defined, the hole he left in the Muppet workshop was hard to miss. Celine, with his mischievous sense of humor and his penchant for explosions, was the heart and soul of the Muppet Builders. He had built the first Rolf puppet in 1962, which helped create what one would consider the modern Muppet style. He worked on projects all the way back to Tales of Tinkerdee, provided special effects on Timepiece. He built Muppets for Sesame Street, The Muppet Show, Emmett Otter, and posthumously the upcoming Muppet movie. He was credited as the inventor of the Muppet look, taking Henson sketches and bringing them to life, and developed two major design aesthetics. The magic triangle, the relative position between a puppet's nose and eyes that Don felt was the key to determining a character's personality, and the Henson stitch, a specific method of sewing cloth so that the seams would be nearly invisible, especially on 1960s and 70s televisions. He was a designer, and an inventor, and a gizmo engineer, and it seems an all-around rascal, without whose contributions the Muppets may have never reached the level of success that they did. Jim, upon learning about Don's death, was stunned, just like everyone else. But he did not cry. Goals cried. Laser cried. The entire workshop was awash in tears. Even Frank Oz, the arms-crossed cynic of the bunch, admits that he was crying and really angry. But not Jim. He told Frank... It's okay. We'll see Don again. Henson soon thereafter dedicated one of the memorial benches in Hampstead Heath to Don's memory. He would often sit on it to think, to confer with Don, for years after he passed. Celine's death was a huge, massive impact for us personally and professionally, remembers Frank Oz. The Muppet Workshop would never be the same. On a less tragic note, The Muppet Show would add new performers for its third season. In addition to Louise Gold, now properly acknowledged as a Muppet performer during the show's closing credits, they would be joined by an 18-year-old puppeteer from Atlanta named Steve Whitmire. Jane Henson, on a trip down south, had agreed to meet the young man at the William B. Hartsfield Atlanta International Airport, and was impressed when Whitmire showed up with a footlocker full of puppets he had been performing on local broadcasts, which reminded her of when she and Jim and the earliest Muppet performers would lug their heavy motherfucking black boxes all across New York City. They sat in a cafe at the airport, with not a whole lot of room for Steve to audition, but he pulled out one of his puppets and started entertaining and interacting with several children that were present. Jane was so impressed with Whitmire that she recommended Jim take a look at him. He did, and invited him to join the Muppet Show for the new season, at first playing background characters and right hands, but eventually graduating to lead characters like Rizza the Rat, and, in a future they had yet to even consider, Kermit the Frog himself. A new writer would also enter the fold, joining Jewel. Hinkley, and Bailey as the core of the Muppet writing staff. The only Brit of the bunch, Chris Langham, also an actor and comedian, 
wasn't yet 30, and would go on to write 48 episodes of The Muppet Show, and even guest starred on one. Unfortunately, Langham's post-Muppet Show behavior would taint his entire career, and this is the last we will speak of the man until we get to his odd and purged by Disney guest starring episode. This season of The Muppet Show was going to start off with a lunatic sprint, filming 13 episodes over the course of the next three months. The pace was breakneck, but necessary, because the Muppets had a date with Bombay, India, to make their movie debut. Or Hollywood, I guess, if you want to do it the easy way. And they could not afford to be late. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest stars, Rita Coolidge and Chris Christopherson! Okay, before I tell you about Chris Christopherson, who's a very impressive man, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, we're starting a new season, and so usually there's some different things. First off, the opening theme. It's really unchanged. Did you notice it's pretty much the same thing as season two? There's one significant change, I would say. Yeah, there's one change. There's the audience uh, callback. It's time to get things started. Why don't you get things started? The audience uh, response. So that's there. And, and uh, there's also going to be a little joke here or there added, but it's it's pretty much the same. They didn't reshoot anything, you know, other than that one audience shot. It looks like they revamped the audience for this season, too. I don't know if you noticed. There were some audience shots that were much, much more impressive mm-hmm. um, than shots of the audience we've seen in the past. We have a new location. We have the Muppet Cantina. Their, uh, their cafeteria, I guess, right? Muppet Isley. And uh, we, we already have several scenes in here. I don't know how many we're going to get. I don't know how long this is going to last, but it's definitely a new location. And of course, with it, can't have a lunch counter without a lunch lady. Just ask Adam Sandler. (laughs) And we have Gladys, the canteen worker, played by Richard Hunt. She's kind of mean. What was that character's name? I'm like 90% sure that she was the model for the curmudgeonly old woman in the first Monsters, Inc. movie. Because they look very similar. Wazowski, you didn't file your paperwork last night. Yeah, no, that's a good call. So uh, she's kind of, um, she's not going to last super long. I think her, I think she's a little too gross and abrasive, even for the Muppets. You know anything about Chris Christopherson? I've heard his name in passing. I remember him from the Blade movies. And I think there's a story of him comforting Sinead O'Connor when everyone was very upset with her in the early 90s. I don't know much about him outside of that. I've always, I've been a fan of his as, as, as an actor, not as much as a musician, but that's out of lack of exposure, not out of you know any distaste for his music. But reading up on him, holy cow! And uh, Rita Coolidge as well. Her story is a little shorter. Uh, she's not. She hasn't had quite the success that uh, that Chris had. And also, it's important to point out that while a big deal is made of the fact that they are a married couple together in this episode, they will be divorced within a couple of years. Christopher Christofferson was born June 22nd, 1936, just a few months before Jim Henson in Brownsville, Texas. He's of English, Scots-Irish, German, Swiss-German, and Dutch ancestry. His grandfather was an officer in the Swedish Army, and his father was a U.S. Air Force man, eventually retiring as a major general. Military service was a family tradition, as you can tell, and one he was expected not to break. Like so many armed service families, the Christoffersons moved around a lot, but they eventually settled in San Mateo, California, just down the street from Nick, and graduated from San Mateo High School in 1954. He was an aspiring writer. Some of his early essays won prizes, and two of them were published in the Atlantic Monthly. He attended Pomona College, where he played rugby, where he played rugby, football, and did track and field. He came out of it with a BA in literature and earned a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford University. I think he's our first Rhodes Scholar. While at Oxford, he continued to, p- continued to play rugby, 
and he also boxed, and he started writing songs. He got a manager, he recorded his first songs under the name Chris Carson, and no one really cared about him or heard any of those early songs. In 61, he graduated with a Bachelor of Philosophy in English Literature, and the next year married his longtime girlfriend, Frances Beer. Chris did end up joining the U.S. Army after that, keeping the family tradition alive, eventually attaining the rank of captain. He was a helicopter pilot and also completed ranger school. In the 60s, he was stationed in West Germany, I guess probably guarding the wall, and while he was there, he formed a band. After his tour was over, he was offered a chance to teach literature at West Point, but he said, no thanks, I want to be a songwriter. This decision would cause his family to disown him, because who in the hell would be proud of their multi-sport athlete, summa cum laude, Rhodes Scholar, published author, U.S. Ranger son? What a disappointment of a human being he must have been for his parents. It's unclear whether or not he ever reconciled with his family. In 65, Chris moved to Nashville because if you're going to write songs anywhere close to being country, you got to go to Nashville. He and Francis got divorced soon after moving there. Now he got a job. Remember, he's got these two degrees. <laughs> he's he's a, a, a helicopter pilot. He's an army ranger, but he gets a job sweeping the floors at Columbia Records. Uh, but while he was doing that in the hallway, he met June Carter and asked her to give his demo tape to Johnny Cash. She did, but he didn't. He didn't hear back from them. Christofferson also took a job as a helicopter pilot for an oil company out of Lafayette, Louisiana, commuting back and forth to Nashville. Of course, he was writing the whole time, and he penned one of the songs from this episode, Help Me Make It Through the Night, while sitting on top of an oil platform. In an act, now this is, this is where it gets crazy. Pr- pretty impressive so far, right? This is where it gets nuts. In an act... Equal parts, desperation, bravado, and I would say pure idiocy. Chris landed a helicopter in Johnny Cash's front yard in order to make an impression of him and get the country legend to listen to some of his songs. Just landed a chopper in his front yard. While he probably should have been arrested, the trick worked, and Cash recorded one of Chris's songs. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt and the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. And later that year, Christofferson won Songwriter of the Year at the Country Music Awards. After that, Chris got signed to Epic Records and started his career as both a recording artist and a professional songwriter. He wrote songs for Ray Stevens, Jerry Lee Lewis, Roger Miller. Uh, his own recorded stuff didn't go over so well at first, although he did play the New Pork Folk Festival. His, it t- took him a couple albums to get his albums going, but he was a major songwriter. He wrote his songs for a lot of different acts. During this time, he dated Janis Joplin all the way up until her death in 1970. Her recording of Chris's song, Me and Bobby McGee, was a huge posthumous hit for the notoriously troubled singer. He wrote a bunch of songs for other people, too, released more albums, won some Grammys. It's, it's really hard to keep up. In 1970, Chris ran into singer Rita Coolidge at the Los Angeles airport, where they happened to be on the same flight. He got off in Memphis with her, rather than his actual destination of Nashville, which is kind of the plot of Richard Linklater's movie Before Sunrise, now that I think about it. Rita Coolidge was born May 1st, 1945 in Lafayette, Tennessee, to Dick and Charlotte, a minister and a schoolteacher. She is of Cherokee and Scottish descent. 
After living in and around Nashville, Rita's family ended up in Florida somehow. I couldn't find how or why. But she graduated from Andrew Jackson Senior High School in Jacksonville and then went to Florida State University. She started singing at an early age, and after college, she was working in Memphis, trying to get singing gigs and even recorded a few jingles for television, when she was discovered by the singer-songwriter duo Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett. They brought her out to Los Angeles, and she became a background singer from, honestly, some pretty huge acts, like Nashville legend Leon Russell, Joe Cocker, Harry Chapin, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and Stephen Stills. She even toured with Joe Cocker. In 1971, she recorded a demo of a piano piece with her boyfriend, Jim Gordon, (laughs) good name, who was the drummer for Eric Clapton's band, Derek and the Dominoes. Clapton ended up using the composition for the piano coda of the band's masterpiece song, Layla. Goodfellas fans know what's up with Layla. Jimmy was cutting every link between himself and the robbery, but it had nothing to do with me. And she was never credited. In fact, she didn't even know about it until she heard the song on the air. When she tried to contact Clapton, she was told by his manager, quote, What are you going to do? You're a girl. You don't have money to fight this. End quote. This is a good moment to remind you that Eric Clapton is a white nationalist, anti-masker, anti-vaxxer twat whose talent should not keep him off the trash pile with garbage people like Morrissey. After their airport meeting, Coolidge and Christofferson began dating, and they got married in 1973. They recorded several albums together during this period and won a Grammy for Best Country Performance by a duo or group for their song From the Bottle to the Bottom in 1974. Now, her greatest pop successes came during this time, where she charted four consecutive top 25 hits. But definitely the peak of Rita's career success was while she was married to Chris. In 1978, the couple did the Muppet Show. Now, officially, Coolidge and Christopherson Christopherson were divorced in 1980. But some sources I see say that their marriage nominally ended in 76. Like that they were separated or they weren't officially, they weren't together anymore. They just weren't divorced yet, which would paint this episode in an entirely different light. (laughs) Um, And I'm not 100% sure. I know they're playing a couple in this episode and I don't actually know the facts, but I found some sources that said they actually broke up in 76, but didn't get divorced till 80, which would make this episode very strange. After the divorce, uh, Rita kept recording. She was among the first hosts on the cable network VH1 which was, of course, MTV for more laid back old people. And in 1997, she formed a band called Walila, a Native American trio with her sister and her daughter, Laura. Walila means hummingbird in Cherokee. Her 
autobiography, Delta Lady, a memoir, was published in 2016. She is currently 76 and lives in Tallahassee with her old college boyfriend, who she later in life reignited a relationship with. Christofferson mostly focused on acting during the 70s. His credits include Dennis Hopper's Notorious The Last Movie, a few Sam Peckinpah films, including Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He was in Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Fantastic. He was in the 1976 Barbara Streisand remake of A Star is Born, probably his highest profile movie role. It's not the Judy Garland Star is Born, and it's not the Lady Gaga Star is Born. It's the Barbara Streisand Star is Born. That role did win him a Golden Globe. Uh, He was also in Heaven's Gate, the movie that single-handedly destroyed the greatest era in American films. That's not his fault, though. He's pretty good in it. Later in life, he would appear in John Sayles' uh, kind of neo-Western Lone Star and played Abraham Whistler, the mentor of the Daywalker in the Wesley Snipes Blade trilogy. Blade's mother was attacked by a vampire while she was pregnant. She died, but he lived. Unfortunately, he'd undergone certain genetic changes. He can withstand garlic, silver, even sunlight. And he's got their strength. Unfortunately, he also inherited their thirst. On the music side, in the early 80s, Chris made an album with Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, and Brenda Lee called The Winning Hand. And then he made a a record called Music from the Songwriter featuring duets with him and Willie Nelson. And that one was a big hit. He and Nelson then created the country supergroup The Highwaymen and recruited Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash to join them, firmly placing Chris in what is considered the outlaw country tradition. Good morning, America, how are you? Say, don't you know me? I'm your native son. I'm the train they call the city of New Orleans. From what I can tell, his sales waxed and waned, and but he kept making music. From 2004 to 2015, he had a pretty rough battle with Lyme disease, which was originally diagnosed as early onset Alzheimer's, but uh, he recovered from that mostly. He is still with his third wife, Lisa Myers, after nearly four decades of marriage. He has eight children from three different marriages. Chris was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1985. He's released over two dozen albums, won four Grammys, several CMAs, that Golden Globe. And in January of 2021, just seven months ago, at the age of 84, Chris Christopherson announced his retirement for performing. That's a lot of life before he even becomes a singer. Yeah, it's very impressive. (laughs) Like I was like, I knew a little bit about him and then I was like, Oh, okay. So he was a, okay, Rhodes Scholar, neat. Oh, he was a army ranger. All right. (laughs) He was like a star football player. Like there's a lot of other movies he made. He even made a movie where he played a football player in it. But if anything impresses me, it's him landing his helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn. Yeah, that could have very easily gone pretty helter-skelter, but it it turned out for the best. How does that not get you shot? (laughs) How does Johnny Cash not come out with a shotgun? I feel like most people that weren't Johnny Cash probably would have come out with a shotgun. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. 
I think you can tell in this that he's more comfortable in front of the camera than she is. Yeah. Although he breaks more than Jimmy Fallon. He breaks several times. <laughs> I wonder if he was surprised to get the call to be on The Muppet Show in the first place. At this point, I mean, this is 1978. At this point, he's already been nominated for an Oscar for A Star is Born. But has he done comedy, though? I um, mean, he's made a lot of movies. I don't know if he's done comedy. Uh, yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting dude and uh, got a really great backstory. So I was I was I was very pleased to to read it with hers. It's like she kind of her career had this kind of her career had this kind of she's she um, got popular there in the late 70s. And then like a lot of people there, her uh, popularity waned and, you know, she still keeps making music and, and, and makes it for a living. But, you know, just became a lot less popular over time. He, he managed to stay in the spotlight by making a ton of a ton of great movies and stuff, too. At, at the end of our Muppet Show theme this time, uh, like we said, pretty much the same as season two, Gonzo gets the hiccups, so he's not able to actually blow his trumpet, which I thought was cute. So then, Nick, this is Nick. This is a very sexy episode, or at least that's what we're told. You're not feeling it. I just... <laughs> like, it doesn't... Yeah? Piggy wants us to think so. I just want to thank you for letting me do this opening number with Chris. Oh, well, that's all right. It, it's a very sexy number. I hope you won't be jealous. Don't worry. Uh, you sure? Positive. Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Chris, please. <laughs> come in, come in. You'd better introduce us. He just cannot wait. <laughs> Again, I was watching this with my children. I'm glad they're home in time for the very sexy number. And she's trying to make Kermit jealous. And Kermit's like, yeah, I, I don't care. She even pretends that he's goosing her. <laughs> Did you notice that? Yeah. <laughs> she's like, oh, Chris. <laughs> so funny. Um, and then she assures Kermit, of course, that no matter what happens, remember that she loves him. So we get our opening number. It is a Chris Christopherson song. Um, it's one of his, all the songs he sings in this, he wrote. It's Piggy and Chris singing, and they're backed up by the mayhem. And they're singing a song called Help Me Make It Through the Night, which is, I would say, a sexy song. Take the ribbon from your hair. Shake it loose, let it fall. Laying soft against my skin Like the shadows on the wall um, Even though it was written on top of an oil derrick? I mean, who knows what you're thinking about when you're like stuck up there with nothing to do? He was probably very lonely at the time. <laughs> my guess, he was very lonely and uh, a little thirsty and was sitting on top of an oil derrick and wrote this song. Thirst has given us some pretty great songs. It has. I, I think this is hysterical. <laughs> Piggy just works him. I feel like he thought it was hysterical, too. He keeps breaking. I don't try to understand. Let the devil take tomorrow. Lord, tonight I need a friend. It's crazy. Like, usually these tracks are pre-recorded, but this doesn't feel like his vocals are pre-recorded on this one. I, I don't think he was ready for Frank. I don't think so. I don't think anyone's ready for Frank. I think we're going to find out in this whole episode that Frank's still a freight train. But yeah, they sing this song. They sing this nice ballad, uh, you know, one of his big hits. And she is just all over him. And they're like taking off her clothes and stuff. Like slowly, but 
It's a very kind of sexy 70s seduction song, and um, and they go for it. And at the end, I was a little disturbed at the end because she starts kissing him, but she's like kissing his chest. So I was like, is she trying to suckle? She's a pig. This podcast is not kink shame as, as uncomfortable as certain things might be. That's fair. And then he leans down and like starts making out with her. It was a very sexy opening, just like Piggy. I don't know why. What's your problem? Why don't you think this is a sexy opening? I yeah no. Like I'd have to go back and rewatch it. He kept losing it, man. He kept it. It was. I thought it was really charming that he kept. He was like, oh. But I think you're right. I think Frank's just blowing him out of the water because he's just there singing a song, and Frank has given this huge performance of Piggy just basically wanting to be ravaged by him, and I think it's too much for him to handle. (laughs) Piggy is often too much for people to handle. We're going to see a number from him and then a number from her and then a number of the two of them together is how they kind of balance the two guest star thing. This is the first time we've seen this, right? With two guest stars. Yeah, basically. There's the uh, the episode with... With the puppets, right? Yeah, with, a, with like the secondary puppeteer, but he wasn't a guest star per se. He was just sort of like featured. Yeah, with the Bunraku puppets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then there was um, obviously Mo and Shantz was three people. Yeah, but they were a single entity though. Yeah. So this this is interesting. I said they were they were very famous at the time for being a couple. I'm going to age myself by saying Benefer. Although I'm not cuz Benefer's back together, right? <laughs> so I I haven't been keeping track. It's been a strange year. Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez are back together again. That's how thing, how weird things are right now. So then we go to the canteen. We see the canteen for the for the first time. What do you think of Gladys? So I saw a lot of horror movies as a small child that I probably shouldn't have seen. <laughs> Which featured a number of animatronics. So Gladys is equal parts the the cranky old lady from Monsters Inc. and a graboid from Trimmers, and it's a little uncomfortable. There's a little bit of uh, of a gremlin in there as well. Yeah, like Gremlins Two, Gremlin. I forgot about that movie. Gremlins Two is the best, man. I I have a soft spot for the first one. I know they're both great. I mean, the first one's better because the first one has the most amazing speech in the history of movies with Phoebe Cates. The house was freezing, so I went to try to light up the fire, and that's when I noticed the smell. The firemen came and broke through the chimney top, and me and Mom were expecting them to pull out a dead cat or a bird, and instead they pulled out my father. (laughs) But the second one, I actually worked on a movie with Joe Dante, and uh, the director of Gremlins, and we mm. talked about it. And his favorite movie he's ever made is Gremlins Two. And we had a very long discussion about Gremlins Two. It was a lot of fun. I feel like I haven't rewatched Gremlins Two since I learned about Reaganomics. So rewatching it after that is going to probably be very interesting. It is fully a Looney Tunes cartoon come to life. That's all it really is. Hey Gladys. Yeah, dear. What's the soup, the jar? Same as yesterday. Good. I'll have that and the chicken. Uh, of course, he also wants some chicken in a great line where she asked him if he wants it, what, broiled, grilled, or barbecued. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I just, I just, I just, I just want it for company. Although the best part in this, so who's this pig that walks in? Hey, Gonzo, Kermit says you're on next. I, I, I don't, it was weird. Like, I don't have any info on him. Maybe he was just, he's basically just an extra. He's probably left over from the pig takeover. So for both of the episodes tonight, I feel like we don't have as coherent a backstage story. And I, I don't know how much of that is incidental or not, because it does seem like they're trying to push in a different direction. Uh, I would I would say the second one has a pretty strong backstage story. Kind of. So Gonzo, so Gonzo, uh, he's, he's getting his food. And then this real rough looking pig comes in. He's like, hey, Gonzo, you got to get out there for your act. And Gladys is trying to be sweet. And she's like, oh, Gonzo, you can pay for your lunch later. And he's like, hey, you're finally going to get to do the old piano balancing act, eh? Yeah. 
You'll pay me now. And she slams him against the table and goes, you'll pay me now. <laughs> right. Which makes it seem less like a horror movie. <laughs> I just thought it was really good. <laughs> like, oh, you're, you're, wait, what are you doing? I think you'll pay now. So that is Gonzo's next bit. Gonzo is going to recite his seven times tables while standing on a hammock and balancing a piano. I would like to point out, despite the outcome of this, this is freaking amazing what he's doing. It is, but also... It's impossible. So last season, we got to see that Gonzo is maybe two feet tall. Dude is strong, man. And I'm assuming it's all core strength, but also... It ain't upper arm. Like, is the is the cube square ratio in effect? I'm not entirely sure what's going on. He may be very strong, but he is bad at math. Seven times one is, uh, seven. Seven times two is, uh, seventeen. Oh, let me count that. Right. And my eight-year-old was like, fourteen. And she started yelling at him, Gonzo, it's fourteen. And by then he had, of course, was trying. Now, he doesn't have fourteen fingers. I don't think. Maybe he does. I don't know. He is a weirdo. But. He like pulls down his hands to uh, count on his fingers to try to figure out two times seven. And of course, he drops the piano on his head. This one's entirely his fault, by the way. No beaver, no ex machina. This was just purely his fault. Seven times two. Come on. Then we get to Muppet Labs with Dr. Bunsen Psychopath. So do we have a green screen more so for this one? I think they're playing with effects a little bit more. So coming to Muppet Labs. And um, so this one's weird. So it's not weird. It's just pretty standard Muppet Labs. Bunsen has created elevator shoes, atomic elevator shoes. Remember, where that's how you make something seem powerful back then. Can we talk about the fact that Bunsen calls Beaker short and stubby? <laughs> we can. I just, I want to think, it's like brain from Pinky the brain calling Pinky short. It doesn't. I think it's supposed to be ironical. I'm sure Bunsen intended that way. The Jerry Jewel may have. So Bunsen, he's got these uh, these shoes, and they make Beaker go up and down. They seem pretty harmless, right? He he raises him up, he raises him down. Okay, that's kind of neat, right? That's kind of Inspector Gadgety. Yep, that's what I was trying. I was like, what what had like the gadget of expanding shoes, and that is absolutely an Inspector Gadget thing. But then Bunsen pushes the button and just leaves it there. The le- pulls the lever. And leaves it there so that Beaker keeps going up and up and up. And Bunsen has a very strange line. Beaker, you never told me you wore stripy socks. So we've talked about the strange nature of Bunsen and Beaker's relationship. Again, we don't kink shame here. But is this Bunsen's I hope this doesn't awaken something in me moment? Uh, All I know is that. I love the quote, the quote line. I will add untold inches to Beaker's unfortunate physique. (laughs) Yep. All of this is just coded. It's fine. He's not projecting at all. So he gets super tall, but then it gets really disturbing because then his legs break separate ways. So I was thinking about that. He like wishbones. Kind of, but not necessarily, depending on where his knees are in this particular arrangement. If we're looking at his shins, that might not be out of, like, he's still got a concussion. There's no, there's no <laughs> yeah. two ways about that. Yeah, he's, he's two or three floors up by this point. But it's entirely possible that if his knees are above the screen, then this isn't actually, he's just bow-legged at that point. Okay, yeah, because to me, because it, it looked like he just got split in half like a wishbone. Because he can't be that tall, like, aren't they in the basement? Where is he? Um, why am I thinking so much about this? 
I don't I, I don't know if they're in the basement because it looks like there's a window in the background. Oh, there is a window. Yeah. Actually, my wife was trying to figure out tonight what was outside that window. Mm. So next up, it turns out if you can't do Wayne and Wanda, you just do Wayne. <laughs> I've got questions about this. I've got uncomfortable questions about this. Uh-huh. How did Wayne get back on the show and what happened to Wanda? Well, Wayne's been on the show. He just hasn't. He's been in the background. I mean, we know what really happened to Wanda. Just Aaron Oscar left. Story-wise, what happened to Wanda, I do not know. What I find fascinating about this, so it's basically, you know, Wayne comes out to see my wild Irish rose. My wild Irish rose. And then he's attacked by a wild rose, you know, with teeth and stuff. It's exactly a Wayne and Wanda sketch, just without Wanda. But they didn't do that at all last year. They didn't, but... Not once did they do this. It's so weird that like they had this running gag. The Wayne and Wanda sketches were running gag. Aaron Oscar leaves. They retire Wanda. And so season two, they don't do it anymore. Season three starts. and They're like, hey, remember Wayne and Wanda? Let's do that again. It's so weird. They did Wayne and Wanda sketches without Wayne and Wanda, and they tend to work better when it's not Wayne and or Wanda. That's a good point. They did one with Link. I remember, right? Mm-hmm. I know they did one with Link. That's that's not a bad point. That's not a bad point that they did do similar ones. These, I've said it before and I'll probably say it again before we're done recording, these two episodes feel different. Like something from the top down has changed and I'm still putting my finger on it. I actually think the addition of the canteen makes it feel different. That's probably it. I think it gives it a very like... It feels more like a sitcom. Yes, that's it. It feels more like a sitcom. This is a set that I would expect to see in Boy Meets World or something. But like, is this their version of the Peach Pit? from 90210 or from what was it the max was that uh say by the bell it's or, or you know or cheers or whatever right it's like they're or the central perk on friends you know kind of something like that i think that's what they were trying for yeah i don't think it lasts it feels we've broken and leaned on the fourth wall plenty of times but something about this feels like you can like you can feel the, the hand of the writer the canteen stuff feels a little out of place so we're in the canteen and there's, there's this now, you know, we made a big deal last year about the episode uh, about Piggy's weight. And I stand by the fact that that episode itself was mean. I think in this is actually an interesting interaction other than uh, Gladys calling her fatso, or, yeah, the fatso special. But even then, it's Gladys doing it. It's not the show doing it. Mm. Piggy's going to come up and order and is going to order dinner. And Gladys is dealing with the Weight Watcher special. And Piggy's like, no, I'll take Watercress sandwich on whole wheat and four ounces of rhubarb juice. One fat so special. I've seen actors eat less, by the way, for lunch on movie sets. I've seen actors eat way less than that. And uh, then Gladys is very rude and calls it the fat so special. But the, the whole setup is that then there's there's um, Annie Sue Pig there. There's a problem with these two episodes. They're narratively in the wrong order. This was recorded at first. And then the next episode we're going to talk about was recorded second, and they are labeled number one, 301 and 302 on Disney Plus and on the DVDs and everywhere else. But narratively, they're backwards. This is a storyline where Piggy already knows who Annie Sue is and already has a rivalry with Annie Sue, but that's not going to happen till the next episode. We will call this a scooter dilemma, the scooter paradox. Annie Sue Pig comes up. And- I'm not really hungry. But I'll have a chocolate milkshake, a hamburger with french fries on the side, an apple pie with cream. One kamikaze special! And, and you know what? As, a, as an older person, I can identify with Piggy in this. Yes, it's a joke about her weight, but at the same time, like, uh, when you are younger, your metabolism is so much better. <laughs> and you can eat that junk, and there comes a point in your life where you just have to stop 
like where not where you have to stop, but where like you can tell. <laughs> and uh, so I get that kind of jealousy, you know, but this doesn't feel as does this feel as bad to you as that other episode? I think that the focus is different. And I think you you drew attention to a good point that it's not the show calling attention to Miss Piggy, nor is it the the primary focus so much as it's a vehicle for Piggy to feel jealous. Yeah, this jealousy, this rivalry, you know, and, and those are real insecurities that people have. With the episode from last season, there wasn't really a target. She was, or she was the target, I should say, but yeah. it wasn't triangulated. There, It was a, a pretty straight line of this to this, and I think that that's where a lot of the umbrage came from, if I'm not mistaken. This episode, it's also, I think, important to remember with, with both of these episodes and um, how much Piggy there is in them. Mm-hmm. At this point out in the world, Miss Piggy is the biggest star of The Muppet Show. The biggest star, not even close. And we talked about how that probably just has to do with the fact that the best puppeteer is working her. But Piggy took off as a huge character. She was the Muppet Show. We look back now and people want to see, you know, people see Kermit and, and, and Gonzo. In 1978, she was the Muppet Show. And so it's kind of fun to start the season off with this like, oh, everyone loves Miss Piggy. What happens if a cuter, younger pig singer shows up? And we had seen the character before. Uh, we saw her in the Julie Andrews episode. It's also these episodes are also both uh, they're a, a nice showcase for Louise Gold who's finally credited, even though she was working on the show for most of last season, she's finally in the credits now and and she plays Annie Sue. And so I think it's a a nice showcase of her voice and her comedic talent. Now, Piggy doesn't kick her. I want to point that out. Piggy does not hit her at the end of this. Piggy just pushes the cart that Annie Sue is leaning on (laughs) uh, and sends her flying and then gives, I will say, the most insincere apology I've ever seen in my life. I'm sorry. Where are you on Annie Sue? So... Annie Sue's kind of distracting. There's a there's a whole thing about sneezing powder, and I wasn't sure if she was the one that planted it. It's never really confirmed. We'll, call, we'll cross that when we get to it. Yeah. But there's also the- there's this husband and wife indie pop duo called Tennis, and the wife has a blonde sort of perm like she does. Okay. This is just something that comes from existing decades after the show and off the air, and it might be a complete coincidence. But I keep expecting her voice to go up like three octaves. It's not anyone's fault. (laughs) It's nobody's fault but your own. Exactly. I think she's funny. I think Mm -hmm. Louise Gold does a great job with her. She's very sweet and, like, sincere. So, I just, I want to imagine that he's taken his time off. Try to, like, just recenter himself. Get ready for what he knows is coming. He's, like, reread The Old Man in the Sea. <laughs> he's like, been sitting out on his he's been sitting out by a swimming pool in robe and like in a robe and boxers reading Hemingway and books on the Roman Empire leather bound books that reek of rich mahogany I, I would absolutely believe that there's a scene in Billy Madison where his kindergarten teacher informs him that he has to take recess because it's not really for the kids <laughs> We found a movie in common. We found a movie in common. You got to get your ass out there and you got to find that fucking dog. Exactly. We found a movie in common, Nick. I get I get your Billy Madison reference. <laughs> Better than your go-go shit that I never know what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, so the Muppet Newsman comes out very simple. There's been a burglary. Someone stole all the silverware. You know, if you don't know what's coming next, you haven't been listening. Yeah. Or watching. It has disappeared into thin air. I'm just waiting for him to come out with like a calendar on his head or something, or just like some sort of football helmet and just be like, I know what's happening. If you'll notice, they mostly land on the table. Mm-hmm. I guess they probably didn't want to kill their boss who was under the table. So they, they aimed a little conservatively with them. Mm-hmm. Piggy has made, has made a connection in her brain, Nick. 
And she's trying to inception it into Kermit's brain. With a concussion? Rita and Chris are married, and they're in show business together. And that that's possible. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hi-ya. Uh, in a very funny scene where she, where Kermit's like, Piggy, I have to go introduce Rita Coolidge. Oh, I just wanted to mention that Mr. Christopherson and Miss Coolidge are happily married. Uh, yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it shows that you can combine show business careers and marriage. Well, I, I suppose it does, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, we both have show business careers. That's true. Mm-hmm. Need I say more? She's very aggressive in these episodes. Like, I, I really have to go introduce Rita Coolidge. Yes, dear. I just wanted you to think about it. I don't have time to think about it. Maybe six months in the hospital will give you more time to think. <laughs> I, I, I will think about it. So Rita comes out and sings. Um, the only note I wrote down, and this is very, very terrible of me. I just wrote boring. Outside the rain begins and it may never end. So cry no more on the shore. A dream will take us out to sea. So we've got the same furry friends from... Oh, oh from For What It's Worth? For, yeah, from For What It's Worth. Well, the whole cast of Emmett Otter gets a pretty good workout. There's a lot of woodland critters. You see the mayor from Emmett Otter gets a lot of work in these. Um, but Rita comes out and she sings a song called We're All Alone, which is one of her solo hits. And she just kind of sits... Listen, man, this, this gave me Judy Collins vibes. That's what, it's the 70s. Yeah. Well, these, these are two very 70s episodes. <laughs> very 70s. There's a one point where I think Christopherson's shirt magically like unbuttons three buttons. Like in one shot it's buttoned up and the next shot it's not because it's a 70s man. You can't have the top three buttons buttoned. This is the type of song that my wife recognizes instantly and says makes her teeth hurt because it flashes her back to her time at the orthodontist which is about right. (laughs) It's about right. It's that uh, late 70s kind of folksy kind of country. I don't know. It's written by Boss Skaggs which is interesting. But uh, anything, you got anything on We're All Alone? I'm, I'm mostly thinking about how unsettling it is to associate the song We're All Alone with an orthodontist's office. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure why, <laughs> but somehow the, the combination of those two variables is distinctly uncomfortable. Introducing the charming 18th century romantic ballad, A Frog He Would, A Wooing. So we get th- this this gr- UK spot's crazy because uh, it's one, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. But also it is a version of one of our favorites. Rol- for this UK spot, Rolf and Sam perform a song called Frog He, he Would, would a, a Wooing Go. Hey, ho, sir, Roly, whether his mother would let him or no. Beautiful. Um, which is a 17th century English folk song, and it's a variation of Froggy Goes According. They're not similar, but they're all like related. 
I mean, the title is very similar, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of a little little riff on a froggy goes a cordon, which I love. Uh huh. Uh huh. Neither one of them understands the words. I love it specifically because Rolf doesn't need to. Like he's like, I can read the notes; it'll be fine. Meanwhile, Sam knows the chorus kind of. This just, it feels like someone's coming in saying they love Heya and only knowing like the first three lines and then the chorus. Sam asks uh, Rolf what he thinks of the song and Rolf's like, well, I like it better if I understood it. And so Sam's like basically decides to translate for him. Well, let's start with a frog. He would a wooing go. Aha! Uh-huh. Oh, uh, yes, that. Uh, this shows us that there was a time when frogs indeed used to go woo. <laughs> frogs don't go woo woo, they go ribbon. <laughs> Only very recently. Good bit from Rolf and uh, uh, Sam. So then uh, we have the one acting scene for Chris and Rita, where Chris comes into the dressing room and tells Rita, we got to talk. Are we alone in here? She's like, yeah, we're alone. He's like, I don't know. Like everything talks around here, animal, vegetable, even minerals. And then, or animals and vegetables. And then you hear a voice go and minerals. And there's a rock that talks. And uh, he says, uh, Hey everybody get out. And then the lamp and all these other parts of the room come alive and walk out. Can we talk for a second about how terrifying the cold war gets? If it exists in a world where Muppets are actually a thing. Dead drops, I thought you were going to talk about how terrifying it was that all of those things were in there while all these famous people have been getting changed. Oh, yeah. Well, there's that, too. There are terrifying implications to this entire scenario. But then one of my favorite moments. Is, so then Rita and, uh, and and Chris have a little conversation. Again, he seems a little more relaxed than she is. But to be fair, he's been in a lot of movies. Rita, this is a very weird show. Yes, that was a little strange, but I think you'll find most of the Muppets are pretty normal. I Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Scooter, Kermit. Hi! Hi! What about this one? Gonzo? Hi! Say, how about a couple of autographs? And Rita goes to get a pen, and Gonzo's like, don't worry about it, I've already, I've already signed them. Which you see coming, but it's still funny. <laughs> oh yeah, it's great. And like, he... he- Tails onto it too. He's like, people think I'm dead. (laughs) I I love it. Yeah. So with Gonzo's runner for the rest of the episode is that everyone that he's basically, and listen, I don't, I don't put it above the great Gonzo to fake his own death that that because the piano should have killed him, which it should have, uh, everyone thinks he's dead. So his autographs are worth a fortune (laughs) up next. I like to call, Hey guys, we were 90 seconds short. This is Floyd, Dr. Teeth, and Zoot playing New York State New York State of Mind, the Billy Joel song, which they did in episode 209 last year. So if you want to hear us talk about that, go back to episode 209 of last year. It's they just they probably ran short and grabbed a clip that fit. <laughs> That's what it seems like. Then we have a chicken playing chimes. That's all I got. Well, it's playing a song called For Me and My Gal which is an old vaudeville song. But, uh, and then the last chime, you know, does a little pendulum swing and comes back and hits the chicken in the face. Uh, a very slight moment. However, the, the uh, chime in the face, do you know who laughed? Jim. Kids. Well, probably Jim, but the kids. Then we have an entire a, a sequence that I don't really know why it exists. It's just a bunch of food puns. I think they were trying to make the cafeteria stick. They were trying to push Gladys. Mm-hmm. Hey, you want to see our apple turnover? Sure. Hey, Apple! Turn over! Hey! 
Floyd does make one very pervy joke. I might just slide by later and take a look at the salad dressing. As I'm thinking about Gladys, though, and I understand why she she's not back, but it just seems like it would have been a good opportunity to bring Hilda. Hilda would have been great. They could have had Hilda run the canteen. They were trying something with Gladys. Like I said, she's going to be on here for a little while, but I don't think she comes back after the movie. Hmm. Or maybe she does. Rolf and Fozzie come out and sing Hi Diddly D and Actor's Life for Me, which is from Pinocchio, and I knew that when it came on. I knew that was from Pinocchio. The diamond chain, hi diddly do. You sleep till after two. You promenade with a big cigar. You tour the world in a private car. You dine on chicken and caviar and actor's life for me. I don't know, man. You put Jim and Frank in front of a camera with their puppets. What's going to go wrong? Nothing. That's great. <laughs> some good, uh, some good punch. Some, some actually not some good, some really bad jokes on Fozzie's part. It took me like a third of the sketch to realize why it felt off. Cause I didn't, Fozzie's hat had changed. Um, yeah. He's wearing like a, like a proper top hat. Yeah, he's wearing a top hat. Uh, but yeah, this is this is just classic Jim and Frank. It's great. Hi, diddle dee an actor's life for me. A high silk hat and a silver cane. A watch of gold with a diamond chain. Hi, diddle doo You sleep till after two. Then we get our finale. This is going to be a problem I have with both of these episodes. Why do the finales have to be so low-key? <laughs> Why are the finales low-key? Go big, man. That would be nice, especially because Jim likes to finish with explosions or, or someone getting eaten. But one of the things I'm I'm forcing myself to keep in mind about this being filmed when it was is my association with the 70s is largely like disco or certain rock groups, stuff happening in Detroit, and a couple of movies that came out during the era. But living during that time, I imagine you would have heard a lot more soft rock and that there would have been oh, like yeah. this weird counterintuitive tranquil aspect to it. So I think this is a product of the time. There's a song I'd like to sing. Do you know the song I mean? It don't always sound the same. But it's always good to sing. I did write down, is Sweetum stoned? Because he's like rocking back and forth at the table. So uh, Chris and Rita sing Song I'd Like to Sing, which is another song by Christofferson from his 1973 album Full Moon. They sing into those little skinny mics, again, dating it so hardcore. <laughs> I have you know you never see those little skinny microphones outside of the 1970s. There's a animal has like a merry and there's animals playing drums and he's got like a, a mariachi band of whatnots. I feel like we've seen them before, but I can't place them. And then the rest of the bar, wherever they are, is filled with uh, walk around monsters. It's a fine song. We'll talk about it with Leo Sayer. It's just like this is your finale. <laughs> like, but you're right. Maybe it is just. I mean, and you're correct. Soft rock was the thing. And we have to remember, one thing we have to remember, as much as we love him, is Jim Henson was a square. <laughs> like, he really was. He might have been a rhombus, but yeah. It last forever If we wanted to I don't know. Fairly underwhelming, but, you know, they're they're nice, I guess. Like, after, after that bio, I definitely... Chris Christopherson moves up that list of people that I'd like to have a conversation with at some point. Oh, dude, dude's, I mean, he's like 86. He's, 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 he's got fire stories. Man. Oh, he's got, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I skipped some of them. <laughs> um, so, uh, so after the song, Gonzo, they, they come out to say goodnight, and then Gonzo is carried out on the stretcher by two chickens. It's so Gonzo to, to, like I said, to fake his own death. It's a very Gonzo thing to do. But Gonzo's riding this whole I'm dead thing. Now, his autographs are sure to be worth a fortune. How is he going to profit from that? Oh, that is entirely the wrong question. Gonzo's not trying to profit off of those autographs. This is the best bit that he could possibly... He gets to fool on Tom Sawyer. He doesn't <laughs> want to true. see a dime. He just wants the satisfaction of knowing that he'd reached that level of acclaim. I didn't love the music in this episode, even though I have a lot of respect for Christopherson. Like, it's just that 70s mild country that's just kind of boring. But I thought the episode was good. There's a very distinct energy of we haven't been able to do this for a while and we're all happy to be together again. That's pretty contagious. Leo Sayer, 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Sayer. Well, Nick, we knew the 70s would catch up with us and we'd eventually get some disco. So as a small child in the 90s, I heard a lot of disco because my parents and grandparents had their kids relatively young and they loved listening to a lot of disco. So it didn't bother me as much as it bothers a lot of other people. Like this is the late 70s at this point, so it is kind of surprising that it's taken us this long. I, I enjoy them. <laughs> I I am almost not, not ashamed to admit it, but I'm quietly admitting I really enjoyed him. Tell me a little bit about Leo Sayer. So Leo Sayer, born Gerard Hugh Sayer. Wow. All right. Not sure where Leo came from. On May 21st, 1948, to Teresa Nolan, uh, who is of Irish descent, and Thomas E.G. Sayer, who is of English descent, in Shoreham by the Sea in Sussex. So the American education system failed us in a lot of ways, not the least of which was geography. If there's anything about this that I <laughs> like the pronunciation or any sort of etiquette for something for a place like Shoreham by the sea. No, I think that's right. But, but, but you are correct. The American education system fails us mightily when it comes to geography. Yeah. They don't teach us anything about any other countries. <laughs> well, they don't teach us a lot about our own country, but that's a whole separate hat. <laughs> He is the second-born son of three. He attended St. Peter's Catholic Primary School. Uh, he would later go on to study commercial art and graphic design at West Sussex College of Art and Design in Worthing, Sussex. I feel like he spent a lot of his early life in Sussex. In January 1967, while he was 18, he was working as a hall porter at King's Hotel in Hove, uh, where he assisted in the rescue of elderly guests from a serious fire that damaged the hotel's first floor. He, in turn, had to be rescued from that hotel, but that is a really interesting little tidbit. Uh, when he was 18, he was discovered by musician David Courtney, who then co-managed and co-produced him with a former pop singer-turned-manager named Adam Faith. We'll come back to Adam Faith in a little bit. He, he made choices. <laughs> okay. He began his career co-writing songs with Courtney, including a song called Giving It All Away, which was given to Roger Daltrey of The Who, and it got him his first solo hit in 1973. Uh, he also began his personal career as a solo artist that same year, uh, directly under Faith's management. He was signed to Chrysalis Label in the UK and Warner Brothers in the United States. His debut single, Why Is Everybody Going Home, appropriately enough, didn't chart. Look at the sky, it's falling down The world is spinning 
I shouldn't laugh at that. Sorry. I won't go into all of the different songs he did, but he did do a a cover album of three Beatles songs, including I Am The Walrus, Let It Be, and The Long and Winding Road. That album was called All This and World War II. All right, cute. The thing is, I had heard one of his songs, but I already I always associated it with the Bee Gees. I didn't. He he had success on both sides of the pond, but I don't know that I've heard his name as much. His career would peak in 1977 with a song that I just mentioned called "You Make Me Feel Like Dancing," which we would hear tonight. I think everyone's heard that one, and we always associated it with the Gibbs Brothers. I don't know why. I don't. I don't think I knew who sang it, but like you know. I've heard it at weddings and stuff, right? Yeah. Or at least white people weddings. I don't know. It's an earworm. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you grief for that. It is an earworm. It's been stuck in my head all week. Throughout the course of his career, he would see a number of set up setbacks, especially financial ones. Uh he and his first wife divorced in nineteen eighty five. Um, and the financial disclosure from that revealed that his manager, Adam Faith, had horribly mishandled his business affairs. And yeah. The millions of pounds that he'd earned had been lost through questionable event or questionable investments and business expenses. He sued him for mismanagement and settled out of court in 1992 with him receiving a reported payout of 650,000, which isn't as much as he would have lost ostensibly, which kind of sucks. Right. He also fought for the, the publishing rights to his songs in the early nineties as well, specifically against Chrysalis's British label. In 1996, he sued his new management because his pension fund had been mismanaged up Jesus. to around a million. And he spent over 90000 in legal fees, but the case never made it to court. And he had to abandon the suit because he couldn't afford to keep going. Man. He is still alive. He, up until relatively recently, he's still been working on music. He made it onto the UK singles chart at number one with a DJ's remix of Thunder in My Heart. How old is he now? He's 73. In 2009, he became an Australian citizen, and he'd been living in Sydney since 05 at that point. He also, outside of The Muppet Show, he made appearances on The Wiggles. You Make Me Feel Like Dancing was the focus of the episode, as you might expect. And then he was also on Celebrity Big Brother UK and an Australian TV comedy called Stupid, Stupid Man. Subtle, subtle title. He did have a cancer scare, but he underwent surgery. He's got cancer, like history of cancer in his family, but luckily they were able to catch it in time. He is still alive. He's still creating. His last album came out in 2019. It was called Selfie. So we're going to get into the episode now because there are three points of comparison because I wasn't sure. I hadn't researched him before I started watching the episode. I kind of wanted to go into it yeah. pretty fresh. I do that too. He reminded me of three people all at once. That shouldn't surprise me. Because the similarities there, I mean, the Venn diagrams are very much not circles, but... So who are your comparisons? My comparisons are... I know the first one. Richard Simmons. Richard Simmons, yes. Roland Orzabal from Tears for Fears. And mm -hmm. Rembrandt from the Warriors movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go with, like, Barry Gibb or something, but yeah, you're not wrong. Well, there's, there's something specific about, like... I think in his first number, and we'll get to this in a second, 
he jumps around and like fidgets a little bit like he's like someone's holding his notebook above his head or something like that and just telling him to grab for it like that weird sort of semi-twitchy energy that somehow conflates those three things he does have a moment here where i do fear for his health i do wonder if he's having a stroke yeah <laughs> that's fair Let's just say he's not Lou Rawls. One of the genres he's been said to perform in is Blue-Eyed Soul, but I, I wouldn't put a lot of that in the bowl. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, Callie looked that. My wife looked that up too. She found she was she found he was listed as disco, pop, and Blue-Eyed Soul. Which I, the only other group I can think of that applying to is Hall and Oates, which is different. Yeah, Blue-Eyed Soul would be like who? Like would Rick Rick Astley would be Blue-Eyed Soul? I guess maybe. I feel like he's ascended to just becoming a meme at this point. I mean, Blue Eyed Soul is what the equivalent of white rappers, right? Something. There's like a... Like, so is he Eminem or Vanilla Ice? I feel like he's a less problem... So... A less problematic Eminem. Well, I was going to say a less problematic Presley, but like, because... Right. I'm going to try to refrain from upsetting people who are fans of Elvis Presley. Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me if he's straight out racist to suck on what's simple and play. Typically, when I hear Blue-Eyed Soul, the first musical act that comes to mind is Hollow Notes right. or something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I'd, I'd never actually looked too far into the actual parameters of what qualifies as being in that genre as opposed to not. There are definitely acts from around that time. Uh, the Righteous Brothers, I believe, mm. were considered Blue-Eyed Soul. Think about like Unchained Melody. Yeah. I enjoyed him. I didn't run out and like download any of his music, but I enjoyed him. I think he was very excited to be there. He was. He was. Well, enthusiasm goes a long way. It does. And also there's, there's that little bit where if I were in my, I would be a nervous wreck, but if I were on like able to hang out with the Muppets for a week and just try to get my lines right and do my bits. Yeah. I would have been ecstatic. I would be super nervous, but also really happy to be there. He looks like he's having a good time. Yeah. Muppet Show, episode 302, featuring guest star Leo Sayre, produced between February 21st and February 23rd, 1978. It would premiere in the UK on March 26th of the same year, and in New York, or excuse me, in the United States, in December of that year. That is a long gap. Yeah. I don't know if that had something to do with the movie or not. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that, I guess. It was directed by Peter Harris and written by Jewel Bailey Hinckley, Henson, and Langham. We do have a new face for this one, which will be Fletcher Bird. It is a full-bodied, multicolored dancing bird, named after Graham Fletcher, who we talked about before, as the porcine ballerina in Swine Lake, my personal nightmare fuel, voiced by Steve Whitmire exactly once, seven episodes from now. So, in our cold open, Leo directly addresses the audience, and I, I mean, this is basically where it takes hold. It's like, yeah, he's just really happy to be here. Yeah. You know, I don't really believe that this is the Muppet Show. It's so quiet in here, you can almost hear a pin drop. Strike! There's something about the way that this particular open is set up where it almost seems like a setup for a monologue. A little bit, yeah. But, of course, they're not really going to go for that because he thinks he could hear a pin drop, and that's kind of equivalent to saying the word explosion if Harry is anywhere within two miles of you. Or I don't know on a Nickelodeon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but a bunch of bowling pins drop, drop and he's just sort of bombarded with them. Was he hit by a bowling ball? 
And then a bowling ball bonks him in the head. <laughs> yeah. So he can hear a pin drop and a bunch of pins drop. And the bowling ball bonks him. But my favorite part, though, is that Lunch Encounter Monster and Behemoth walk by. Like, I guess they're been they're out bowling somehow. <laughs> like, they're walking home like two blue-collar guys coming home from bowling. I mean. Like Fred and Barney. Animal likes to bowl overhand. Maybe it took off. That's true. Maybe they've got a league. Ooh, the Muppet Monster Bowling League. I, I bet it was a thing. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a bowling ball. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So we, we go to the Muppet Show theme, uh, where Gonzo actually manages to blow the trumpet this time, but probably a little too hard because his teeth come out. And This was very disturbing. It's super... How many teeth did he have? Like, is the inside of Gonzo's mouth like a shark's mouth? I don't know. At first I thought it looks that was like foam. confetti. It's confetti or foam or, yeah, like spray foam. Someone just, like, put silly string on the other side of that trumpet, but still. It's silly string. That's what it is. It's silly string. But he yells, my teeth. And I was like, oh, my God. Right? It's one of my worst nightmares of all my teeth being blown out. Like, But, like, uh, it's not even that, like, all of your teeth are coming out. They're projectiles at that point. There's, like... Something. Well, if I'm going to lose all my teeth, I'm going to use them for. I'm going to. They're going to have a purpose. That's going to be like the worst X gene to get is just my teeth randomly become <laughs> not the rest of my bones. I'm otherwise completely human, but my teeth will my sometimes teeth. Yeah. hit someone from across the room. I found this very disturbing, and so did my entire family. <laughs> Fair, yeah, no, it's it's real unfortunate. Yeah. There are a yeah, lot of unfo- exactly. uncomfortable questions. <laughs> there are. It's a very confusing moment. Yes, so this is where we find out that Kermit the Frog thinks Leo Sayer is a rock star. You know, Kiss made I Was Made for Loving You in order to get in on the disco craze. And they were otherwise very much a rock band. Yes, a very mediocre rock band. The idea of Leo Sayer opening for Slayer is actually nice, if only because it rhymes. But also, they would probably, (laughs) he wouldn't make it off the stage. I've been at shows like that. Um, I've been at Slayer shows. That would have been a terrible idea. It's just funny because Kermit comes out. Yeah. And he says, it's not, it's not, it's not usual. We, it's, it's very unusual. We get some good rock on this show. And you're like, really? We're just going to roll with it. It's not very often that we have any really good rock on the show. Uh, Yeah. We rocks are pretty upset by it. (laughs) I I, I suppose that's true. I guess we've been taking you for granted. Lucky rock with no sense of humor. From there, we've got our opening number where Leo dances with our our new star. The energy of this felt a little bit like the Madeline Kahn feet song. A little bit, yeah. Maybe that's just the way it's shot. Uh, it's also a little eyes wide shut going on. Yeah. With the uh, masks, the masked bird, the birds and stuff. Like for when they're just, at the beginning, when they're just kind of standing there, you're kind of like, this has got a little bit of an eyes wide shut thing going on. But. Like there's this weird jigging thing he's doing with his shoulders anytime he moves. And Oh him, yes. Yeah, yeah. like I, I just remember looking at that like I've I've seen people do that before. And I typically see people do that when they're trying to be endearing and or like affect being cute. Which fine, whatever. It's it, it's not out of place on the Muppet show. No. <laughs> You've got the better of me Just snap your fingers and I'm walking Like a dog hanging on your lead And it's his big hit. Yeah. Right? This is the song he's most famous for by far, right? 
when people know that it's him. But yeah, when people, yes, when people don't assume it's the Gibbs. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, he, he comes out and sings, You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. He's got that uh, falsetto thing going on, that Bee Gees falsetto. Hmm. And um, yeah, he sings with Fletcher Bird. I don't know, man. I, I thought this was fun. <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was fun. Yeah, it's it's fun. It's a fine, like... I don't hate the song, but I hate the song because it's still in my head. You, you said earlier it's an earworm. It is definitely an earworm. It has been haunting me all week. So for that reason, I don't like the song. But I thought the song was completely fun. And fun. Sounds like the song likes you. It's okay. We're real intimate these days. <laughs> it's... Uh, but yeah, so so Graham Fletcher comes out and just like he did in Swine Lake, he he, he dances alongside the guest star mm-hmm. and does some moves that you clearly tell that that's a professional dancer in there. Mm-hmm. You make me feel like dancing. I wanna dance the night away. You make me feel like dancing. I wanna dance the night away. You make me feel like dancing. I feel like. Yeah, man, I don't know what to say about it, man. It is it is seventies as hell. It is disco as hell. Um, there's there's a very easy tilt that this bit could have taken into being a horror scene, but it didn't, so it's okay. The aesthetics of it are kind of creepy at yeah. first, um, but then well, it, it just it's just weird. From here we go to our backstage where Miss Piggy. Oh, Miss Piggy is in rare form tonight. She is. I love it. She questions Kermit about the upcoming number, and he explains that there's a new girl singer. But it's okay, though, because she's a woman. Which strokes her ego just enough for the moment. Yeah, but... (laughs) So the thing is, he doesn't go full Gonzo, because at one point, Gonzo explained he had shifted his affections to someone who was everything that Piggy wasn't. And he went on at length about how amazing Madeline was. She's beautiful. Where all Kermit says is she's very young. But uh, when she finds out it's a pig, she's not happy. And then, yeah, Kermit tries to say, no, she's nothing like you. She's young. Piggy doesn't like hearing that either. But she's like, she's very young, though. It's, I, I think he's mostly trying to say she's like, she's just finding her feet. It'll be okay. But it doesn't make it that far. Kermit is actually trying to do his best with this one. He's not being, he's not trying to be mean. He is trying to like, he's saying like, listen, she's young. And he sees that Piggy takes offense to that. And he's like, well, but that means she's inexperienced. And she, you know, she's still learning. He's trying to cover his tracks a little bit. So the thing about Annie Sue as a character at this point is she does seem to be very genuinely sweet. And I think that there is probably some part of Kermit that's like, well, she looks up to Piggy and maybe Piggy will mellow out if she has someone to mentor. So maybe I can pair these two up. But, you know. That's in a world where you, you, you've never met Miss Piggy. Yeah. But but this is great, though, because then what Piggy goes up to her dressing room. So she says she's got to do some stuff. <laughs> and Kermit's uh, and then and then Annie Sue comes in and Kermit's like, oh, Piggy, do you want to meet Annie Sue? Which, again, is why this is weird. that This episode is second and not first, because in this episode, this is Piggy meeting Annie Sue. Mm-hmm. Um, when she was already knew her in the last episode and Piggy's and, and Piggy's like, Oh, hi. Um, I gotta go do something. And Kermit's like, Oh, it's fine. She, uh, she said she has some things to do. And then you just hear. Sounds like she's doing them now. <laughs> she goes full Johnny Depp and just trashes her entire <laughs> dressing room. There's like some sort of, uh, I, I think it's been proven to actually increase aggression instead of decrease it, but there are those rooms that people can go into and just break stuff. <laughs> Sponsored by Limp Biscuit. Give me 
It's really funny. <laughs> it's really funny. And now, here to entertain you, the Muppets delightful little lady of song. Uh, 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 that, that is one of the Muppets' delightful little ladies of song, uh, Miss Annie Sue. It's a song called Carbon Paper, which is another one of the Abe Burroughs songs. Uh, we heard a lot of the stuff last season, like Gypsy's Violin or Memory Lane. Um, Frank is actually performing her during this number, uh, but Louise yeah. Gold is still providing the vocals. She just didn't have as much experience with puppets prior to joining a year before and wasn't really she was still learning they she just felt like this kind of um because she plays her in other in other scenes and she does a great job i think this is such a it's a solo piece it's a kinetic one too yeah it's a very very active and you're the focus of it Mm -hmm. you know the entire thing and so you know and, and listen she goes on to become a very good puppeteer and i think she already is at this point but um you know when you have the best puppeteer in the world sitting in the same room with you yeah. And, you know, and you can and, make him do the puppet. You have him do the puppet, you know. The love that you gave me was a cut with scrudges. Cause you put a piece of carbon paper under your heart and gave me just a copy of Gave me just a sheet of love. So there's something to Kermit in this episode in particular because we don't we don't get to see him be a mentor very often, like maybe a little bit with Robin, but not so much because Robin's his nephew more than his protege. And Scooter's going to shove him in the back as soon as he has a chance. So he's not necessarily mentoring Scooter. Oh, Scooter's got her for his job. Kermit's going to take an unfortunate spill down the stairs at some point in the horrible, horrible Muppet remake of Showgirls. That we've talked about many times and I have two, I just, <laughs> who plays comma McLaughlin? Anyway, go ahead. Oh, Uncle Deadly. Who are you? Who else? <laughs> who else would play? Oh, no. It has got to be Uncle Deadly. Uncle Deadly getting the lap dance. From, oh, Jesus. You can hear the voice, too. I know you can. Yeah, I know. Just, just <laughs> talk about Talk about the pig. <laughs> so, backstage. Sorry, I'm going to start this over. Backstage, Kermit stops Annie Sue to tell her how, how good a job she did. Hey, that was terrific, Annie Sue. Oh, thank you, sir. I was so nervous. Oh, you were wonderful. The audience loved you. You were a smash. Oh, thank you, sir. She kisses him on the cheek and she runs off. Piggy doesn't like that. But on a scale of Piggy to Piggy, this is actually a relatively tame response to it. Well, that's because Kermit has a plan. You know that dramatic recitation you've always wanted to do? Of course. Uh, well, I want you to do it now. Really? Mm-hmm. I had the stage all set up out there for you. Oh, Kermit! Oh, uh, which side did she kiss you on? Uh, this one over here. He's making it up to her. I like this level of relationship with them. Yes. Well, but even then, there's, there's still, it's still a very one-sided relationship. No, I that, yes, the romantic relationship, yes. But even... I like this aspect, though, of him... This isn't the same Kermit that was calling her fat last season. Right. This is one who like, he knows he's hurt her feelings. He's get setting her. He's giving her the number that she wanted to help her make up for that. I think he's just trying to get her to stop breaking. St- like, I don't think, yeah, but it's some consideration at least. Yeah. But I, I feel like it's more of him juggling liability than him being like, Piggy seems upset. And I genuinely care that Piggy seems upset because she's so good at respecting his boundaries. 
No, I don't think he cares about that as much. Uh, you're right. It's probably more an executive decision. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I just think it's still slightly more considerate. It, it's slightly more empathetic. Mm-hmm. How do I fix this? Okay, well, let's give her that number she's been asking for. That's all. I think I think that's still a better Kermit than the, the one that wanted her to lose weight. But it's got a very funny beat at the end, though, when she asked Kermit which uh, cheek Annie Sue kissed him on. And he's like, this one. And she goes to the other side and kisses him <laughs> and kisses him. I was so expecting her to punch him. No, she was a, she, she's she been waiting to do this. And I'm sure it's going to go incredibly well. What? Speaking of Wayne and Wanda sketches. Should I finish the episode? You absolutely should. You talk. I'll watch the rest of it. Go ahead. Miss Piggy recites William Wordsworth's The Daffodils on a stage filled with daffodils that I'm sure that Piggy paid for. No, no. Kermit surprised her. Kermit oh, yeah, surprised that's her. That's true. This time it's from Kermit. Kermit actually bought Piggy flowers. He did. It's he did. kind of indirect, but it still counts. He can't. He can't ever take that back. <laughs> Sucker. And <laughs> Rolf backs her on the piano, but both of them are allergic to the flowers. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills. <laughs> when all at once I saw a crowd, a host. Of golden daffodils. Watch. I, I, maybe pianos just don't weigh as much for the Muppets or something. She's a powerful woman, man. <laughs> she is. Um, <laughs> Once these says the entire piano's screaming off stage. <laughs> Poor Rolf. <laughs> we see it backstage and he's he's still sitting at it and it's just a mess. He's trying to tune it. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Um, but then Piggy gets blown off her feet by the audience. Oh, yeah. She, you see her fly, too. I think that was probably... <laughs> it's, a, it's a good shot. She does, like, a good flip. That was my most audible laugh of this week. Yeah. It's just seeing her go pinwheeling. <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so this is where it gets weird, right? Because Piggy then comes off stage. And- All right, where is El Slimo? Who put the sneezing powder in the flowers? There's two interpretations of this, right? I guess, right? One, there's no sneezing powder. They were just allergic to the flowers. Mm. And she's being paranoid. Or two, someone did put sneezing powder and they don't resolve this at all. Right. So there's a part of me that wants to know that it was Annie Sue, but I don't yeah, think me it, too. I like it better I if it's not. Really? See, I kind of like it. That, like, I don't know. Just because she's... So Robin is kind of... We don't see as much of Robin, but Robin is the heart of the show at this point, right? But it could be nice for them to have someone else that isn't like... <laughs> isn't like a Seinfeld character? <laughs> yeah, like, we we just need a couple of people on the other end of the bell curve. To make up for the insanity? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There, There is part of me that... But, but you gotta admit, dramatically, there's something really fun about the idea that Annie Sue is really an evil mastermind. Oh, it would be. It's, uh... As we're coming up with movies that the Muppet Show could parody that they probably shouldn't. Like, if we get a full single white female out of this particular scenario <laughs> between Annie Sue and Miss Piggy. Now, that may not be a movie that a ton of people remember. Maybe they do. I was like four when that came out. Why do I remember that movie? I miss I miss Bridget Fonda, man. She retired. I miss her. And then and it makes Kermit sneeze, too. Did you notice when Kermit sneezes, it's the same sound that Gonzo makes when he wishes? And what do you have to say for yourself? 
It was very bizarre. They used the Gonzo whoosh sound for Kermit's sneeze. I feel like as a frog, he's probably more aerodynamic, so it makes sense. I got to admit, man, I like this next number, too. <laughs> so the thing is, except for the clowns, except for the clowns or the mimes, we're sort of disparaging. Uh, we're sort of disparaging the guests a little bit, but I actually think Leo Sayer is a great guest Me to too. feature on the show. Me too. And as we're still sort of adjusting to whatever's changed for the season, it's a nice inroad in. Leo's backstage with uh, Animal on drums and Bobby Benson on banjo, and he sings The Show Must Go On. Smoking a cigarette. Bobby Smoking. Benson always got that cigarette in his mouth. Of course, of course. You're going to know what the, the film technique is here. Kind of. I mean, it's just editing. He doubles at some point in one of his selves as a mime that doesn't speak till the end of the number. It's it's a nice song. Yeah, I think this song is nice. It's very, it's very dramatically rendered, <laughs> I would yeah. say. He very much throws himself into the song. Um, it's again, it's another one of his. It's from his album Silver Bird. Um, it was later remade by Three Dog Night and, and a bigger hit because they were just a bigger band. Hmm. They're all after my blood. Yeah, I think the song is very like, it's a very hard song to explain. That's why I'll be playing some of it here for people to hear it. But it's also, it, but it is, um, he gives a very dramatic reading. And then he scats. How would you describe his scatting? Nervous energy? <laughs> he has a little bit, he, uh, he, he does some scatting and does some what I will graciously generous, what I will generously call interpretive dance. I mean, he's no Debbie Allen. I don't know. It's it's funny. He commits to it. Is it supposed to be funny? Not 100% sure, but it's funny. It's also weird to hear this like disco guy speaking with a British accent. I don't know why, but it feels like, weird to me. I, I keep expecting him to just get the Richard Simmons for it. He looks so much like Richard Simmons. But also... And he's about as short as him, too. The, the jerky movements as well. You're just sort of like, is is he about to start leading us in a workout? It's, um, I don't know. I think it was a fun number. I would have preferred this for the finale. I could see that. I could absolutely see I, that. Because I, I, again, like, I don't know why they keep wanting to bring us down on the last song instead of bringing us up. From there, we go to our UK spot where we get to see the birds again. And Gonzo sings, she was one of the early birds to a canary sitting on stage. It was at the matinee, sweet Mabel and I did meet. 
Gonzo mentions himself as one of the words and they all sort or one of the worms and they all begin to sort of peck at him. Uh, she was one of the early birds is an, another old British music hall song from 1895. It's written by T.W. Connor. With the old music hall songs, are they just like open source? Is that why yeah, they're used yeah, so often? I think so. They're definitely they're definitely not under copyright. And it's just the vibe they're going for. But uh, yeah, it's just a, uh, you know, and then the, the twist, of course, at the end is what is he says um, that uh, she was the early bird and I was one of the worms. And then the birds finally are like, oh, you're one of the worms. And they start pecking him to death, which is horrifying. Gonzo's died many times. That would be how he'd want to go, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Would. I'm not going to talk about the movie Grizzly Man, but, you know. I'm, I'm just looking at Gonzo and thinking his last line would be nice legs. It would be. It would be. <laughs> His final words. <laughs> so we we go backstage, and I guess this is probably the most acting Leo's going to do in the episode. Yeah. But Dr. Teeth, actually, we're, we've got more speaking time for Dr. Teeth than we, we have before. But Dr. Teeth shows up in Leo's dressing room to compliment him on his last number because he's a rock star. Leo mentions that the song hadn't followed the arrangements that he'd sent ahead of time. Leo! Hey, Dr. Teeth! <laughs> Hey, that last number was terrific. Oh, thank you, Dr. Teeth. But, you know, it's it sounded good, but it wasn't quite the arrangement I sent in, you know? Oh, oh yeah. Well, your arrangements came yesterday. Animal had them for lunch. He ate my arrangements? Well, he certainly couldn't read them. <laughs> when Animal gets anything, he either hits it or eats it. No third alternative. Interesting. There is no third alternative, which is not exactly true because sometimes he likes to dip. He does, but I enjoyed that line, though. There is no third alternative. Of course, Leo takes all of that in stride, though. It's, uh, I mean, who doesn't want to meet Animal? So he, he asks to, actually. He's warned to stand behind the white line, which I'm just, I'm so happy that this contingency is in place because they know. As we're learning, though, Animal does have somewhat questionable behavior towards women. It does seem to be towards everyone. He's he's primarily id. Oh, yeah, he's all id. Hey, you want to meet animal? That's yeah. no problem. Hey, well, one thing, though. What's that? Uh, you see that line down there on the floor? This, this line here? Yeah, stand behind that line. Stand behind it? Yeah, that's perfect. And then Dr. Teeth just calls animal in, which I just want to mention the fact that Dr. Teeth consistently has his back to animal when they're on stage. But, like, off stage, all bets are off. Animal's only going to go after, like, the guest stars and stuff. Maybe. Teeth's got to be boring. <laughs> he's mostly just bones. He's probably just over it. But it's it's a great moment where Animal comes running in and gets caught on the chain. It's like those rule posts that you'll see on something where it's like, someone had to mess up for them to have to highlight this as a rule. <laughs> exactly, like, yeah. I know not to pee on the electric fence, but why is it listed? Who did? Or, um, you know those signs that say X amount of days since our last accident? Like, you gotta <laughs> at least have one real bad accident before you put up that sign, right? Yeah. Like, I've never worked a job where we had a sign like that. <laughs> so, you know, it's not everywhere. Largely very blue-collar jobs. There has to be an inciting incident, one mm-hmm. would say, <laughs> for you to put up that sign. I, I believed that Annie Sue would put the, the sneezing powder onto the the flowers up until these next two bits but annie's i think she's just genuinely happy to meet miss piggy and miss piggy hates the idea of her but also likes to be admired yeah flattered annie seems to be completely genuine and she's so close and everything's amazing of course she should not touch miss piggy oh miss piggy miss piggy miss piggy miss piggy miss piggy (laughs) all right oh i can't believe it here I am, face to face with a real superstar. I can actually reach out 
won't. Sure. That is a privilege that is reserved for the frog, no matter how yes. how rarely the frog uses it. Yeah, it's a very, uh, we'll see this. We've seen this before with Piggy. We'll see it again with Piggy. You know, flattery will get you everywhere. But in this case, it'll only get you so far. <laughs> I've been an admirer of yours ever since I was a little baby. That doesn't sit well with Piggy, though. Piggy is not happy about being reminded how much older she is, apparently, than Annie Sue. How old do you think Piggy's supposed to be? She's probably somewhere in her mid-30s on this. Like, she can see 40, right? Maybe, yeah. She's, she's not there. Like, we're not in full her, Sunset Boulevard, although... In her darkest moments, she sees 40. <laughs> so that makes Annie Sue's, like, 19. Yeah, 19, 20. Does that, mean, does that mean there's tapes out there of Piggy, like, doing stuff when she was a teenager? Was she, like, Taylor Swift? I mean, we're gonna see Muppet Babies, so... That's true. The show begins with her being an established star. So this next bit is... Amazing. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And she wingmans so hard for Fozzie. But if Scooter had been in Annie Sue's place. Right. Yeah. Fozzie just would have died on. And he would have found a way to make it so much worse. Like we, have, we, oh, we yeah. haven't really seen much of Scooter in these last couple episodes. I, I clipped this because this to me was the highlight of the episode and is also just a tour de force by Mr. Oz. Okay. Uh, with the help of my lovely assistant, Miss Annie Sue Pig. Oh, sure now. Yeah. Uh, I will astonish you all with, uh, oh, I've forgotten what I was going to do. Oh, yes. A memory act. Uh, how can I forget? Yes, with the help of my lovely assistant, Annie... Any, oh help, anything big here? Yes? I shall now demonstrate my remarkable, nay, photographic memory. And I shall now ask uh, any hoo-ha pig here uh, to close her eyes, and then I shall describe what she is wearing. No. Uh, I, I, no, she will, I will close my eyes, and then, uh, she will, dis I will describe what she is, uh, no, wait, no, 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 I got it, listen, listen, uh, miss, miss, uh, uh thing, anything, thing here, yes, yes, uh, uh, she will describe what somebody here is wearing, yeah, and with my eyes shut, I will remember where that person is sitting. Frank mother fracking Oz. He's so great. He's so great. Mrs. Thing, anything, thing. <laughs> it's so good. Like, you're right. Annie Sue's a great wingman for this. She does a great job. Louise Gold's good. It is, she's perform her performance in this is really good. All her job is to do is to let, is to stand by and watch Frank do his thing. <laughs> and it's amazing. I'm sure it was scripted, but it does. I, I used to perform improv as I'm sure plenty of people will say that they used to perform improv, but there is a dynamic there where you're on stage, you know, you're part of the scene and you're not trying to take attention from the other party, but you're just waiting from that for that one moment to slide in yeah. and just go and you have to just sort of stay present. And she did her timing was perfect. Yeah. She saves the act. Just, but still just Frank Oz, man. Oh, he's doing amazing. <laughs> it's just, just pure fire between, between what he's doing with Piggy and these, and then this, this bit with Fozzie, which I think was the highlight of the episode. I actually believe that there's nothing funnier on the Muppet show than when Fozzie Bear is on. When Frank has been, is given really good material and is on, there's nothing funnier than something like that. So I think like by modern standards, 
Off the top rope. Before we get to that, though, Kermit probably shouldn't be kissing Annie Sue. I think it's a platonic thing. Oh, it totally is. Totally is. Uh, Kermit does not come across as pervy in this to me at all. Right. I could absolutely see someone getting very uncomfortable with that. But she had kissed him earlier. It's true. Which, yes, will get you kicked out of the Senate now if you're a Democrat. (laughs) Oh. But, (laughs) I mean, the Republicans do way worse things and they get to stay. It's okay. The audacity will cover them. Yeah, that's kind of true. Uh, they're part of their their PR strategy seems to be everyone goes, well, there's no way they're that stupid. And they just get away with it. Oh, you were wonderful, Annie Sue. Oh, thank you, Kermit, sir, but I really didn't do that much. Oh, well, you just saved Fozzie's act, that's all. Really? Sure. Oh. <laughs> I'd say that that bear was in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Now it's the frog's turn! Ah! 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 Off the top rope! I feel like that shot's gonna come back in the Dark Crystal at some point, and I can't remember a specific scene. (laughs) Oh, it does does remind me a little bit of when Jen jumps onto the crystal, maybe. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Like, she's getting ready to just, like, take that plunge. Piggy jumps from the the second level. (laughs) To clock him. It's so great. You just watch her do it. And then they there's a there you could see the cut after they fall down. Mm-hmm. He, so Piggy Piggy's angry. She jumps off the top. Off the top rope. And she comes down and she just takes Kermit down all the way to the floor. Then you can see there's a cut and then they stand back up. You know, they had to change out puppets and stuff to yeah. <laughs> Is it too violent? Perhaps. Is it an overreaction? Most assuredly. I mean, too but violent is something on a very sliding scale on the show. This is a pretty, this is a pretty bold move for Piggy. <laughs> this was, she couldn't even be bothered to run down the stairs. She had to come from off the top rope and bring down the hammer. <laughs> and it's fantastic. <laughs> I don't care about personal borders. I don't care about, about personal boundaries. I don't, I don't care about any of that stuff in this moment. I don't care their abusive relationship. I don't care about any about the, that in this moment. It's just freaking funny she needed to make sure he was aware of the gravity of the situation <laughs> that's terrible that's totally staying in <laughs> and then they bring us down a little bit i just close my eyes and i'm with you and all that i so want to give you a, a little bit so there's something we've we've talked about uh for what it's worth but there's also because I was of the generation of kids that initially had to sneak to watch South Park, there was a, a holiday episode which featured these, like, woodland creatures. Right. Those woodland creatures in that South Park episode look super adorable. Say real, real dark stuff. The conceit of this is that he's up a tree and he's getting chased by this bear that looks like something straight out of demonic toys. And the bear eventually just, like, tags in hit Crazy Harry to blow up the tree and knock it down to its level, where I'm pretty sure these woodland animals are about to eat him. Because so- Kermit gave the, the admonition once that you're not supposed to eat the guest until the end of the show. Until the end of the show, and this is the final uh, This is the final number. They'd learned. I hadn't made that connection, but you're right. <laughs> that was something we talked about before. You just don't kill the guests until the show's over. It's how he manages to not pay them. It's, it's part of the budget. Um... <laughs> This was a number one hit for Sayer. Yeah. Written by Albert Hammond and 
Carol Bayer Sager in 1976. I wonder if that Hammond is related to the same Hammond from The Strokes, but I, I didn't actually look that up. It reminded me of an Air Supply song. You know Air Supply? I think I've heard one of their songs. And I know the night is Both of these episodes, I look at them and I just wonder, like, why do you use the most kind of sedate song for your finale? Think about your programming this episode. Yeah, you want to lead off with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. Mm. That's a great opening number. Visually, it sets itself up perfectly. You know, you know what you need to do. You need some dancing. And it, and it, it lifts your spirits and, and gets you ready for a good time. But this one is just like... I don't know. You could have done this in the middle and had the other one for the end, maybe. This one, I don't know. This feels like a set piece, but it's a very slow moving set piece. There's no storyline about the bears or anything like that, right? It's kind of apropos of nothing. I don't know. It wasn't how I wanted to go out. It kind of took the wind out of my sails a little bit at the end here. Yeah. I, I, I like, I want, I want my finales to get my blood moving a little bit. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to walk out of the movie theater dancing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this doesn't do that for me. When I need love. So we, we get to the close, uh, at which point Miss Piggy tries to compliment Leo, but Leo's way more interested in meeting Annie Sue, which... So rude. Or straightforward. I mean, he could have led Miss Piggy on, but like... No respect. It's her show. It's her show. It's Piggy's uh, show. It made, it made me stop liking him. Like, you're not Richard Simmons. <laughs> to be fair, Richard Simmons would be significantly more interested in Miss Piggy. What'd you think of this one? The season feels different, and I'm adjusting to it, but I'm... Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what the next few episodes hold. I think that they're they're trying new things, they're finding their footing, and that's good. Next time, never mind. So that's all for this week for for our return to season three. We got a bunch of great guests coming this season, just a bunch of them. I can't wait for some of these guests, including the greatest episode of the Muppet Show ever. Ooh. Also, our second woman in the over the course of the show that is very very. Very formative in the sexuality of young me. That'll be coming up this season. And then about, and then uh, in a few weeks, we get to stop and watch the Muppet movie. Looking forward to it. Which is going to be a treat. Um, We were originally going to start this season with the Muppet movie because I assumed it was shot in between seasons. And it was not. (laughs) So... Um, I, uh, we're, and we're trying to stay chronological. We're going to watch our episodes up until, um, Helen ready. And then we will take our break to watch them up a movie. But next time we will be watching episode number 303 with country star Roy Clark and episode 304. Oh, this is a good one for you, Nick. Episode 304 with Saturday night live legend Gilda Radner. Oh, nice. So that's going to be awesome at lunatic daring on all your social media, lunaticdaring.com. My name is Chad. My name is Nick. Thank you for listening. A Feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. 
and a proud production of Antithesis Audio. That was an amazing mess of mediocre mediocrity. You can say that again. Wanna bet? <laughs> 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 <laughs>